You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. One of the things we do at our church is go through the Bible in, in what's called an expository way, which means we go verse by verse through Scripture. And we're currently going through the book of Ephesians, which has six chapters, and today we're going to be finishing up chapter four. And uh, this, this section we've titled, We Are Together, because Paul really stresses the unity um, that, that we're called upon as the church to have. Um, now, as, as we get to the, the passage we're going to be looking at, um, I, I was taken back to all the times that I've screwed things up by not reading the directions. Any other men identify with that? Um, like, I remember when I first became a dad, that's when that process starts, when you just stop reading directions. And I got like, I don't know where we got like nursery furniture from, but I just thought, okay, I can figure this out. I've done puzzles before. Um, this is easier to put it together. And I remember putting like several pieces of, of our first like baby furniture together completely backwards and having to take it apart. And then finally, you know, swallow my pride and read the instructions and then put it together after that. And so, um, and so some of you may Maybe your faith is like that, like you, you love Jesus and you understand repentance, but then like how to actually walk out what Christianity looks like might be difficult for you. Maybe you have uh, gray areas in your life where you don't exactly know what you're supposed to do or not do. And um, if that's you, I've got good news for you. This passage we're looking at today is immensely practical. Um, it's the instruction sheet from Ikea, if you will. And so, so Paul has, has given us a theological, doctrinal uh, treatise. In, in chapters one through three, um, a lot of these um, theological points we've we've gone through as a church, and 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 in chapters four, five, and six, he's explaining how to actually live out um, what he's showed us, and specifically in twenty five through thirty two, he gives five very practical areas that if you want to live a holy life that looks like Jesus, here's five areas that you can begin to pray that you can exhibit, okay? And, and so let me go ahead and read the entirety of the passage. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, not, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, this passage gives us these, these five areas of holiness that we're to uh, pursue in our lives. And in verses 22 through 24, Paul tells us to put off the corrupt old self and to put on what is righteous and holy. And so this passage is coming on the heels of that, what we talked about last week, and just giving us a very practical way to put on holiness, okay, and to put off sinfulness. Nothing is condemned in this passage as corrupt and sinful without Paul offering a holy replacement for it. Uh, Tony Morita in his commentary says this, holiness is not just about saying no to sin, it is also about saying yes to God. And so remember, if you just put off all the bad things, if you think Christianity is just like not doing the worst of the worst, 
but you don't actually walk in holiness and do good works that the Bible calls you to, then you're spiritually naked. You've put off without putting on. And, and that's not a good place to be. It's displeasing to the Lord, and it, and it sells short the grace of God that we're to take into the world. And so I want you to see these five things. I've categorized them as, um, as God's truth and um, exhortations being greater than the sin that used to control us. So we'll see that the truth is greater than the lies that we once walked in. Anger is greater than holding a grudge. Work is greater than theft or greediness. Affirmation is greater than curses, and grace is greater than bitterness. Let's dive into the first point today, which is that truth is greater than lies. You see, the ninth commandment, um, when God gives his moral code in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, he gives um, ten, of, ten commandments, and the ninth one is that thou shalt not lie. Um, Exodus twenty sixteen says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, and so that uh, tells us very clearly from early in the Bible that lying is morally wrong. And, and, and not, just, not just direct lying, but I would say the Bible also explains that any sort of dishonesty is morally wrong. We actually see that uh, Satan himself is called the father of lies, that the serpent in the Garden of Eden, as he's tempting Adam and Eve to disobey God and to fall into sin, um, that, that the, the very first fall in sin is a result of a lie where, God, or where the serpent questions God. And so since the fall, we have, we have fallen victim to lies, and we have become liars. And, and really, it has no place for us as we're being sanctified in grace. And all of these areas of holiness are relational. Remember Paul's overarching theme in chapter 4 is that we are together, that as the church, we are to be unified. Um, and and if, we're in, uh, if we're together in fellowship, together in worship as a church, together in mission as a church, that in that relationship as a family, there must be trust. You guys remember that lesson from Meet the Parents, right? Where, where he says, remember the circle of trust, and we can't break that circle of trust. Probably all of us have some type of memory, or, um, or, or we, can, we can look back on our lives and see where someone has violated our trust or betrayed our trust. And if you've ever been, um, if you've ever been betrayed by someone, you know firsthand how difficult it can be to regain trust from someone. Um, once you place your trust in someone and they break that trust, um, it's very difficult for you to trust them again. And it doesn't have to be a large betrayal. Oftentimes it can be very small. And, and we, we are a culture that's kind of begun to tell ourselves that white lies are okay and a small amount of dishonesty is just normal. Um, in, in ancient Ephesus, one of the things that was normalized was stealing that it was just, it was just uh, one of the things that they did, uh, which this passage addresses as well. And so we, we'll pr- produce in ourselves this white lie that, that a little bit of dishonesty is okay as long as it's not large. Well, listen, a small amount of dishonesty will produce a large amount of distrust. And Jesus talked about this when he, when he used the comparison of leaven and, and making bread rise. He, he used a parable and he said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That means a little bit will cause the entire lump of dough to rise. And so as the church, we're supposed to have um, a persona reflecting to the world the truth of God, that we worship a God who is true, who has proclaimed to us truth and is holy. And as we represent him, we have to walk as people of truth. And when we walk in disgenuine ways, um, we betray the trust of the world who is seeking to see if this gospel that we proclaim is actually true or not. Therefore, any sort of dishonesty has no place in the church. That's why verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 
And so since we've put away falsehood, put away lying, that means we speak truth with one another. That means that we are upfront with one another. Some of you guys may be very non-confrontational, but, but being honest sometimes requires confrontation to approach people in love. We're honest with one another. That means we answer questions honestly, and we're transparent. We don't hide things from one another as Christians. Maybe most importantly, this means that we're genuine. Um, one of the most common arguments against the church that I hear is, I don't want to be a part of the church. I have no problems with Jesus, but I don't want to be a part of the church because the church is full of what? Hypocrites, right? And say, I don't want to, they're hypocrites. I don't want to be with them. I don't want to be a part of them. And so it is so imperative that we understand that, that we need to represent genuineness to the world because we want to represent a perfect Savior, not ourselves being perfect. And so as we, as we point people to a perfect Savior, we admit our own imperfections and faults. We're genuine. And if we pretend that we're perfect and holier than thou, then at, at the root of that, we're ultimately lying. We're being dishonest. And if you find yourself looking at this and say, okay, well, why do we have to live in this honesty? Paul gives you a theological reason, not just for this, but for each of the five exhortations we're looking at today. He gives a theological reason for it. For honesty, the reason is, he says, because we are members of one another. That means that we're family. As, as the church, we are God's family. We're called in Scripture as brothers and sisters and friends in Christ. And if we learned anything from the great show Stranger Things and the protagonist Eleven, she taught us, right, that friends don't lie. And so we have to live in honesty with one another. Um, Paul's probably quoting from Zechariah 8 in the Old Testament where the Lord speaks about honesty um, through the prophet Zechariah. He says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not despise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. Now listen to what the Lord says. He says, For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. You see, the Lord hates dishonesty among his people. Now, it is not strong enough to say that God is disappointed when you're dishonest. The Word of God, the Bible, says that the Lord isn't just disappointed with our dishonesty. It says that he hates our dishonesty. This means that he, it makes him angry. And so the next time that you're tempted to not be fully transparent and truthful, particularly with brothers and sisters in Christ, but really with anyone, remember that the Lord detests and hates our dishonesty. He doesn't hate us because of our dishonesty, but he hates the fact that we're tempted to be dishonest, and it makes him angry. Speaking of anger, anger's up next. The second point and the second exhortation is that anger is greater than grudges. Now, um, you might be surprised that anger is on this list of exhortations of things you should do. Um, this passage of telling us all the good things we should do actually tells us to get mad. Um, now, that, that dispels the, the myth that Christians should not ever get angry about something. Uh, Jesus, remember, is our perfect Savior, and he's our perfect example, and Jesus got mad often. You can read in the Gospels about Jesus getting very angry in multiple different occasions. Um, you, you got those WWJD bracelets. That means flipping over tables is, is in the realm of possibilities, right? Jesus got mad. Um, and, and verse 26 doesn't just give us an allowance toward anger, but it gives us an imperative toward anger. It tells us that there's, there are actually times where, as Christians, we should be angry. 
Verse 26 says, be angry, but then it gives this caveat, and do not sin. And so we have to learn how to be righteously angry without sinning. Um, anger, again, is an emotion um, that we have that is a, it's a good emotion. Um, God gives us our emotions for a real reason. Um, we're created in the image of God. In Latin, it's a, it's a term, imago Dei. And as we're created in the imago Dei, that means that we emulate uh, God's character at a small level in our lives. And anger itself cannot be sinful because God gets angry. And so we can and should get angry at sin. Um, now, we cannot find ourselves getting angry at things that aren't sin. Uh, but we should be angry at sin. We should be angry at injustice. When we see those things in our world, they should make us angry. But our anger should be primarily toward our own sin first before we direct it toward other people's. Again, Paul's probably quoting from the Old Testament. Psalm 4, verse 4 uh, says, Be angry and do not sin. And adds this descriptor, Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. It's important that in our anger, sometimes our, our anger is righteous and good, and it should be there, but we have a really hard time staying silent in our anger, don't we? Um, that's, a, that's a trick that many of us have not been able to master, silence in the midst of our anger. One of the things that will help us greatly is if we make sure we're angry at our own sin first before others. John Calvin famously um, wrote about these psalms, and, and in his commentary, he says, The objects of our anger should be sought, not in others, but in ourselves. May we pour out our indignation against our own faults. And so we can be mad at our own sin, and we can even be mad at the sins of others, but we have no right to be mad at things that are not sinful. Um, most of y'all know we have a dog named Rogan uh, because so many people told me I looked like Seth Rogan and we finally named the dog Rogan and most of y'all know I have a love-hate relationship with Rogan um, and he hates me and I hate him most of the time. Um, but there's a little bit of love there. Um, but Rogan, uh, he, he just doesn't like me. It's like he senses that I'm not a dog person. And so when he comes up to me, he, he snarls quite often, almost all the time when he comes up to me, he's snarling. He's like lifting his lips and showing his fangs, but his tail will be wagging and he'll be begging for a treat at the same time. It's like, I don't like you, but I know you can bless me and I want to eat you right now, but I know I need to restrain that because it's not to my benefit to attack you. Um, and, and so in that, what, what you see is a, is a picture of what the Christian should be. That it, 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 We're not supposed to just restrain our anger and not ever get angry but we're supposed to restrain our actions and not lash out in our anger so that we can honor the Lord and be angry at things we should be angry at, right? Um, it's important that we, that we understand this. We have to control our anger, and we cannot let it control us. If anger causes us to sin, then we've lost control of it. Calvin continues, and he outlines three types of sinful anger. He says the first one is, um, being easily angered. And so just look at your own life. If you find yourself angry a lot, um, maybe you lack patience. Maybe you're, maybe you're getting angry far too often. Um, that's the number one sinful type of anger. The second type is overreacting in our anger. Um, so that, this would be like you, you, you dole out like harsh consequences for anger, uh, for your anger when it's not necessarily needed. And the third would be misdirecting our anger. We're mad at the wrong people or we're mad at the wrong things. 
And also, if anger lingers around, it's a sign that it's controlling us and progressed to what is sinful, which is a grudge. Um, verse 26b says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. The point here is that anger can be righteous and it serves a purpose, but it's not something that's supposed to just reside within us. You see, righteous anger only exists against sin. I tell my kids this all the time when they get mad. What are you allowed to be mad at? You're allowed to be mad at sin. You're not allowed to be mad at non-sin. You can't get mad at things that aren't sinful or unjust. Um, and so we make sure we don't remain in anger by not letting the sun go down. This beautiful, poetic way Paul tells us, don't let the sun go down when you're angry. That means that your anger should lead to a resolution. And again, a theological reason. Why are we not supposed to let anger stick around in our hearts? Verse 27 tells us the theological reason for that. And give no opportunity to the devil. That if we remain in anger, if we remain in a grudge against someone or something or some ideology, it is a massive temptation to sin. It is a massive temptation for us to just, just slide off, in, off the rails into a constant state of sin. The third thing is that we see work is greater than theft. Now, this might be one of the easiest preaching points um, in the Bible. So it's like, if you're stealing, stop it, okay? That's pretty cut and dry. Like, write that down. Like, I should not steal things. Again, this is one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, recently, I watched a show on Netflix with my wife called Kaleidoscope. It's a heist show, and it had me rooting for the thieves, which was a, which was a moral dilemma, right? But it's, it's Netflix, so we threw that out the window. And I'm, like, rooting for these people to steal something. Now, this admonition that we see against theft has implications, I think, not just for theft, but any type of, of greed or, or dishonesty gain. Verse 28 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, holiness means that we replace dishonest gain with honest work. And you might not be like snatching purses off a park bench, right? At least if, if you're doing that, again, easy preaching point, stop doing that. That's wrong. Um, but maybe you're not doing that, but maybe you do have methods in your life that are, that are dishonest gain. Maybe you're robbing from people in the way that you work your job or do your business, or maybe there are other areas of your life where you've let greed creep in and take over your heart, and it is at its root dishonest. Uh, this calls us to be honest in the way that we work and make money. John Wesley, I never thought I'd mention Wesley and Calvin in the same sermon, but I love what Wesley says here. He says, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, and then give as much as you can. Um, in this theology of what work is, Wesley was putting into perspective why we make money. It is ultimately for God's glory. It has the same purpose that everything else in life has. The Bible is very clear that, that our, our uh, number one goal in life, our reason for life, our reason for existence is to bring glory to God. And so as we labor honestly, doing honest work, as this verse in Ephesians tells us, and as we uh, get our paychecks, it tells us what we're supposed to do then with that. It's so that we can give to anyone in need. It's so that we can be generous with the things that God has blessed us with. And again, honestly, I don't think there are very many of you that are planning heists right now. Again, if you are, stop it, okay? Um, but, but just because you're not planning a big heist right now doesn't mean that you're fully obedient to this verse. 
There were people in, in the Old Testament that were, they were thieves. And, and God called them thieves. And they were confused about why God called them thieves. It comes from Malachi chapter 3. And the Lord speaks and he says, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? And you say, How have we robbed you? And the Lord answers, In your tithes and contributions. You see, they were withholding from generosity. And some of you may not be stealing from, uh, from people. You might not be marginalizing and victimizing people by taking money and resources directly from them, but some of you may be robbing God by your lack of generosity. The Lord continues, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Listen, church, there is absolutely no excuse for the church to not be able to pay for the things that the church needs. Um, one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to oversee the paying of bills for the saints, the giving of money to the saints, that when the people who are faithful in this church need something, to see the people of God just freely give what's been freely given to them. And even let that overflow out of our own cup and saucer into a world that needs to see the generosity of the gospel that we, that we uh, preach and proclaim. It is a beautiful picture when that happens, and the Lord is very clear in his word that for that to happen, we need to be generous and be sacrificial with the things he's blessed us with. And if we're not, we're no better than a thief. And in a family, i.e. the church, we all carry along and pull our weight and sacrifice together for the glory of God. And so in these areas, uh, we see honesty, we see patience, we see generosity. And the fourth thing is the way that we talk, our speech. Listen, I can't believe what's about to happen, but I'm about to reference Snoop Dogg in a sermon for the second week in a row, okay? Um, I just couldn't help it. The Holy Spirit brought him to my mind and He's a great example of, of what we're going to look at in verse 29, but um, Snoop Dogg has now released, um, he's starting to make affirmation songs for your kids. Have you seen this? He's like, he's getting old, and so he's got he's to keep, he's got to reach the next generation, so he started making these affirmation songs. This came up at my small group, and we might have been bumping a little Snoop Dogg at small group, but make sure you listen to the right albums. I'm not condoning or recommending his other albums, but what we've seen Snoop Dogg do is come full circle as an old man, and after years of drugs and gangs and disrespecting women, he's trading it in to put out some wholesome content for the first time, some clean and wholesome affirmation. And that's, um, you know, don't do everything Snoop does, please. Um, but that is essentially what this passage calls us to as Christians, that we put away our filthy language, our corrupting talk, verse 29 says, and we replace it with speech that is wholesome, that is good for building up. Verse 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And so what, what does it mean when, when the Bible says corrupting talk? The, the Greek word that's used here, a lot of the Greek words have word pictures kind of built into them, and it has a word picture of rotting fruit. If you're like the Basham family, like sometimes we go and we buy all these healthy foods just so we can have like a science experiment on the counter and watch it slowly rot. You guys ever do that? Um, and so like as you just watch food rot, um, that's the word picture that Paul is using to describe our language and our speech. 
that some of us use language that is rotten, that is, that is filled with vulgarity. And he's saying, put that away. Now, let me make this caveat. What I don't think the Bible is condemning is just four-letter words. Um, matter of fact, when I stub my toe, you, if you're around me, you might hear me shout out a four-letter word, okay? Now, the, I want you to know that, that no four letters put together and said in that sound is not inherently evil, okay? So, so what is sinful is the intent of the heart, not the sound a word makes. Now, we need to understand the occasion and where we are, right? That's why, um, like, sermons don't need to have four-letter words in them, and um, you need to guard your children's little ears from those things, okay? But I think theologically, it is not wrong to cuss when you stub your toe, but what, what the Bible gets at is it is wrong to cuss at people, to use your words in a harsh way with a motivation to curse someone. That's why I actually love the, the phrase that's, that's put in verse 29, as fits the occasion. There are occasions where harsh words are, are necessary and important. One of them is when I go, uh, as a police chaplain, when I go out with a police officer and we encounter some criminal who may or may not be armed, I want that officer who's keeping me safe to use strong language to communicate to that criminal what's going to happen if they don't obey his orders, right? And so those strong situations call for strong words. Jesus used strong words in strong situations. But notice that our, our default should not be strong language, but kind and gracious language. The end of the, the verse says that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul says that our primary intent of communication should always be grace. And verse 30 tells us, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so we must be spirit-led in the way that we speak. It, this, is, this is just like one of those mind-blowing things to me. Think about this. Every single conversation you have, Christian, the Spirit is present in that conversation. He's listening, and if you let Him, He is guiding your tongue as you speak. And your speech should be reflective of the one true holy God that you claim to worship. God's with us in every single conversation. And so we need to be thoughtful and mindful and think before we speak and make sure that our speech is gracious, that it builds up rather than tears down, that it's seasoned with salt, as the word would say, that it's um, received by people in love. And the fifth and final exhortation is that we would be a people of grace rather than a people of bitterness. You guys know uh, sweet people like that are just like, they're a little too sweet. Like they're just like, you can't really be that happy. You guys know people like that? It's like, you're too nice. There's like, you got, you got bodies in your basement or something. Like there's just something going on there. I, it doesn't make sense for you to be that sweet all the time. Okay, so what Paul has in mind in verse 31 is the opposite of that. Um, and, and I don't want to, I don't want you to name names or anything, but you can probably think of people who are complaining people, who, who gripe about everything, who are seemingly never satisfied, never content. Um, if you can't find those people, go to, go to a middle school basketball game. I've been going to those lately, and there's lots of people like that there. And it's like anyone who wears like black and white striped shirts, that is collectively, they hate those guys. Like they all get together against those guys. Um, but, but that should not be the descriptor of God's people. The church shouldn't be full of complainers and grudge holders. 
Verse 31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And so Paul gets real preachy here at the end of this chapter, and he says, all these things you need to put away. I think he's circling back as a preacher to, to where he began in verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. It's filth. Corrupt is where we get our English word filth from. Remember last week I used the analogy of my, my clothes being filthy and stained and having gross pit stains and stuff, and they just disappear from my closet. And Amanda claims she doesn't know what happens to them. By the way, men, I've heard your cries in anguish. I, I, I hear you that the same thing's been happening to you. I, solidarity, brothers. I know the struggle's real. Okay. <laughs> But, but in the same way that we, we throw out garments that are, that are no longer fit to be worn, we are called to throw out bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. We're called to put those things in the garbage. But we tend to hold on to these negative traits, and we fail to pursue the positive traits that God has called us to. Look at the... Look at the juxtaposition of verse 32. Instead of those habits, we are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The imperative that begins that verse B in Greek is literally become. And, it, and it, I think it even has the, the idea in the, in the original language that kind of like what we've named our church, New Heights, that we're always striving but never arriving, that we are, we are putting forth effort to become kind to one another, and we're never perfected in that in this life. We never quite get to perfection, but every day, one after another after another, we are striving to be kinder and kinder to one another and tenderhearted and forgiving of one another. Church, hear me. I want you to become more and more kind. It is important that we do these things. And I want you to ask yourself, who are you unkind to? Maybe a better question is, who are you bitter with? Who are you quick to complain about? Maybe you need to go to that person and make amends. Maybe... Maybe you've done that, but you just haven't moved on into a place of grace, but you just kind of lingered in anger, wrath, malice, clamor, and slander about that person. You know, Jesus told a story and an illustration that, that you were not to go to the temple, and I think you could compare it to the, the altar of, of the temple to the communion table in today's time. If you have strife against your brother that you've not, or your sister that you've not settled, what are you bitter about? Who are you bitter with? Let me just remind you, as you think through that in your own life, that the Lord's bitterness was once upon you. The Lord's anger was toward you. His wrath overshadowed you like a dark and terrifying cloud. That's the reality of what sin does to every human soul. It clouds us in all the terrifying things of who God truly is. 
But yet God in His graciousness and goodness and mercy and love and His emulation of what verse 32 calls us to, His kindness, His tenderheartedness, and His uh, quickness in forgiving has poured out grace upon us rather than wrath. And there is no reason in yourself that He should have done that. There's no reason that God should have shouldn't have just sent you straight to hell with every ounce of his wrath upon your shoulders, but instead he lifted it freely off of you and placed it squarely on Jesus' shoulders as he marched up a mountain to a cross we call Calvary, as they put nails in his wrists and his feet, and as he bled to death and suffocated, he paid the penalty for offenders like you and me for people who did not deserve forgiveness, who God himself was bitter with, yet he forgave us. And so be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgive one another. Why? Here's the theological reason, is because God in Christ forgave you. What, what on earth could you not forgive after what God has done for you? And so Sundays, uh, as we gather on the first day of every week, it reminds us of the theology that drives our life. Jesus forgives us. We're forgiven. It is the greatest truth of my life. It is literally the cornerstone and foundation of everything and, and the entire purpose in my existence. And I want everyone around me to know that I'm forgiven and they can be too. And you know what that's going to require from us, church? It's going to require us to forgive them first so that they can see the forgiveness of God. It's going to require us to have wholesome speech in the way we communicate with them. It's going to require us to be generous and give of our money and resources that God's blessed us with. It's going to require us to work honestly. It's going to require us to be honest with one another and with the outside world. It's going to require us to embody and model the forgiveness that Jesus has so freely offered to us. And what is holding you back? You answer that question this morning. What is holding you back? from what Jesus has set before you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.